Tonight's show is brought to you by Triton Dynamics. Have you ever wanted to work on the cutting edge of technology? Whether it's the advanced Kaser armor-piercing gun or the legendary Arrhenius special operations fighter, Triton Dynamics pushes technology to its limits and beyond. The Terran Vasudan Alliance is looking for new tools to help fight the latest Shivan incursion and could use your help to develop them. If you have a background in engineering or technical design, Triton Dynamics wants to talk to you. Contact us today to find out how you can help keep the Shivans at bay and secure the future of humanity and Vasudan alike. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Space Game Junkie Podcast. I, as always, am your co-host, Brian, and joining me, as always, is your co-host, Jim. Uh, what's your vector, Victor? <laughs> little, little airplane <laughs> reference there. That never gets old. I've watched that movie at least a hundred times. It never it's strangely relevant. <laughs> also joining us is your co-host, Hunter. Helm 108! <laughs> I'm sorry. I get a kick out of that. If you ever watch The Fifth Element, it's just like they yell at this guy behind the glass, and you're just like, look, man, you is don't have to real, yell at him. Is, He's is right real, there. Is that a real guy or an android? He looks like a plastic android. Maybe it's supposed to be an android, but I was just like, Jesus. Like, you just heard your captain say, Helm to 108, and you don't have to turn around and yell it to the guy right behind well, you. Well, maybe like, the guy on. is stressed because his captain's a dick, so he gets his stress out by yelling at this android that can't yell back. Or maybe, I don't, maybe, maybe that, the that android movie, is hard of hearing. That movie does know. have many, many layers to it. Like an onion, or an like a, like or a, a blooming, like like a blooming onion, like like a, like, like a like <laughs> like a honey like a honeycomb cereal, many layers. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Joe, and, a, have, and our and our guest, a man of many layers. We do uh, have a guest this week, my friends. Jim, did you want to introduce him? It sounds like you did. You, you, you know, I've been, welcome. I've been trying to have a conversation with Ken for oh, like eight years. It was back <laughs> back when. No, seriously, I I talked to him on ICQ. Like back Dang, whenever I bought, I'm I know, right? That dates it, right? So it was, uh, it was Attack Vector Tactical, and it was Ad Astra, and he was foolish enough to actually put his contact info for IM on the thing. So, yeah, it was like we we spent a couple nights yammering, and uh, and then it's always just been like, wow, I wish I could get him on the phone or something. So my conspiracy has finally borne fruit, and he's here, Mr. Ken Burnside. <laughs> Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Uh, your conspiracy has been. Uh, Subtle and taken many, many years, and either it's subtle or uh, you've had many distractions, and I suspect it's a bit of both. Well, it's a little ADD. Uh, uh, so yeah, our guest this week, folks, is uh, Ken Birdside of Ad Astra Games, basically the owner of Ad Astra Games, which is not only behind the game we're going to be talking about today, uh, Squadron Strike Traveler, but a bunch of other stuff like... Attack Vector Tactical is that the like prequel to this game? Is that like the precursor to this, or is that not a different... quite? Okay. Attack Vector is a different game engine. Uh, there are oh, okay. some similarities between it and Squadron Strike. Uh, I also publish uh, Birds of Prey, and of course, Squadron Strike Traveler is a supplement to the basic Squadron Strike game engine. Right, and Traveler Traveler is kind of a big deal, isn't it? That Traveler has been around for a million years, right, or a long time. Traveler has been the go-to sandbox science fiction role-playing game since, you know, the late 1970s. Uh, it has been more or less in print in some version or another for going on 40 years now. Uh, and I'm really pleased that I got the license, and there are some interesting stories about this product and almost and how it almost never came to be. 
So I look forward to sharing some of those with you. Oh, cool. So who actually has the, the role-playing game license at this point? Uh, right now, Far Future Enterprises is producing uh, Traveler 5, and Mongoose Publications is producing uh, is producing Mongoose Traveler, which is closer in spirit and mechanics to the original uh, Little Black Book Traveler game. Uh, GURPS Traveler ceased to be as of, uh, Dece- as of December 31st of last year. Uh, after 18 years, Steve Jackson Games decided that it wasn't worth the time to uh, renew the license one more time, huh. and uh, there it went. However, yeah, so, most of the GURPS, uh, however, most of the GURPS Traveler stuff is available online. Uh, at least the Journal of the Traveler's Aid Society, and you can still buy a, you can still find a lot of their books in used bookstores, and they're really good. So, so if I, I've sorry, let me ask this real quick, okay. Jim. I've never played Traveler before. I've never even read any of it, which I know is a failing. Where should I start? As to where you should start, I would actually pick up Mongoose Traveler at this point as the place to begin, just because mm-hmm. the, the game engine is much simpler. But at its very, very, very extremely pulled back view, I want you to imagine that the Firefly, the, 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 the TV series Firefly, with the crew of uh, colorful characters uh, running around, isn't running away from the Alliance so much as they're working on the fringe and the backwaters of, say, a grand galactic empire uh, that is somewhat more ethical than, say, the uh, Empire of Star Wars. And then you've got uh-huh. something that's pretty close to uh, tra- you've got something that's pretty close to Traveler. Yeah, when oh. you said Firefly, Brian's hair stood up a little bit. Well, yeah, yeah. clear. Uh, there is a common rumor, uh, myth, urban legend, whatever you want to call it, that uh, a large chunk of Firefly grew out of the. Uh, game session notes and GM prep that Tim Minear and uh, Joss Whedon were using for running a Traveler game when they were both in college together. <laughs> oh, so I think I've got the... Tra- so I should start with the Traveler Core rulebook. There it is. Hold on, let me get Josh uh, on the phone. <laughs> uh, oh yeah, about 30 bucks. Okay. So there was... The original was Traveler, right? And then there was like Traveler 2300... And then Mega Traveler, and I can't remember back that far with any accuracy. But I, I remember there was a lot of, of forks of Traveler, even in the early. Who who actually started that thing out? That would be Mark Miller, and it originally started out with Traveler. Uh, Traveler twenty three hundred uh, was an entirely different game engine and completely separate from the background of Traveler. Mega Traveler was an attempt to revamp the game engine. Uh, Mark Miller's Traveler or Traveler 4 uh, came out in the mid-1990s after the dissolution of GDW. Uh, GURPS Traveler came on out in the 1990s, right about the time that GDW was running into financial problems. Uh, Mongoose Traveler came out after the open game license, and uh, Traveler 5 is the current iteration of Traveler done by Mark Miller. Oh, cool. Yeah, I've I've played, well, I, I could say I've tried to play Traveler a few times, but I always died in character creation. Because I have really <laughs> evil dice. What what game was that? What game was that that we had a developer on here? It, it was like six months ago or so, and you could actually get killed in character generation. Well, and I, and game, I talked about Traveler at length then. There was a game. I don't remember that one, but there was a game from the late seventies, early eighties called Space uh, for the Apple II, and it actually used the Traveler. It actually got into some legal trouble because I believe it actually was using the Traveler system for character creation. So I died like three times just making my character in that game. Pretty funny. 
Yeah, Traveler Traveler was, as I remember it, fairly brutal. Uh, you know, uh, how how was it um, like combat wise? Was it meant to be a, a fairly deadly system, or was it a little more space opera? It was meant to be a pretty deadly system from the get go. Uh, everybody okay, my was involved it was normal then. Yeah, um, this was no this was no uh, Star Frontiers. That's for sure. Yeah. If you're getting in a fight in Traveler, you had better be attacking from an ambush. If you're getting in a fight in Traveler and you are not the one in the ambush, something has gone horribly, horribly wrong. In this, it actually models you know, modern small ground, you know, mo- you know, small ground combat actions pretty well. Oh. So this uh, Squadron Strike game takes place in the Traveler universe? So Traveler has been a catch-all for RPGs and a bunch of, you know, box board games and nearly everything else that they could think of that they could, you know, that could fit under the banner. Uh, Squadron Strike is a game engine that I built specifically for doing licenses uh, after my experience with Attack Vector and my experience with doing uh, Saganami Island Tactical Simulator. Um, with yeah, Squadron Strike... We should point uh, out that's from the Honor Harrington universe. Yes, that, that, is, from the Honor Harring- that is from the oh, Honor Harrington wow, universe. Oh, okay. Uh, I did the Honor Harrington Space Combat game, and uh, about two years ago, uh, for a number of reasons, I separated from my business partners, and they kept the Honor Harrington license, uh, and I kept the other games. Uh, So with the way the Traveler works, there were all kinds of games that were set up for doing things in the Traveler universe, and Traveler has always had a dichotomy in uh, spaceship action. On the one side, you have effectively... uh, small ship stuff, you know, the, the, the Serenity or a Firefly-class transport is trying to sneak past the Reavers onto, you know, onto the ground in Miranda. Uh, that is the kind of thing you would do, that you would do in an RPG session. Travelers also had a background that has had Titanic fleets uh, moving across the Imperial space and uh, blowing the crap out of each other. One of the very first board games that Traveler did was the Fifth Frontier War, which was all about uh, fleet actions. Okay. Uh, one of the things that Traveler did was integrate those was integrate the ship design system into the algorithm that makes uh, you know counter strengths for Fifth Frontier War, and then that sort of grew on its own and became High Guard. Uh, but for the longest stretch of time, the concept of Traveler of Traveler spaceship combat, where maneuver actually matters has kind of gotten a short shrift. I mean, there are space combat games like, say, Starfleet Battles or Babylon 5 Wars and the things like that, where a lot of the fun is putting ships on the map, moving them around, and you know, making pew-pew-pew noises as you roll dice. And Traveler has never had a successful game in that niche. And that's the niche that I'm trying to hit now with Squadron Strike Traveler. With Squadron Strike Traveler. Yeah, I'm really surprised, actually, that nobody has done a uh, like an official D20 engine conversion of the thing. Because it, it was what a percentage dice based thing. Oh, uh, actually, uh, there is a D. There was a D twenty version of Traveler. It's called T uh, twenty. Uh, I forgot it in the, in the in the overview of things out there. I've got a copy of it on my shelf, but it came and it sort of went without much of a trace. Oh, yeah. Because the advantage with the D twenty thing is that everybody knows how to play a D twenty game because we've all done it at some point, right? It, it just you know, it clicks, right? Um, so you don't have to really learn an entire system. When Because, well, like um, Skyrealms of Jeroen, which is my favorite RPG world, not my favorite system, right? So um, that was kind of the downfall of that game, was that they had a really weird RPG system 
in there as far as their dice mechanics and everything. And you know, it, it would have it would have worked so well as a D twenty game, and unfortunately, that license wasn't really wide open back then. Um, so everybody was kind of trying to reinvent the wheel around that. So, but um, and that's kind of the problem that GURPS tried to solve with Steve Jackson's generic universal role playing system was let's just have one streamlined set of rules, and then you grab you know a, a supplement that is a different genre and bolt onto it. Like, you know, we'll do GURPS superheroes or we'll do GURPS, you know, Ninja Turtles or whatever the heck we want to do. Um, and and that way you don't have to relearn the basics. You just learn, you know, the world that you're in. Um, but yeah, Traveler, it's it, like you were saying, you know, it's been through iterations of that and they've tried different engines and stuff. So Right. So what I would point out is that... Uh, Steve Jackson Games' GURPS is one of the very, very few attempts to make a uh, best way to describe it as universal API for role-playing games. And it is very much a product of the time that it was designed in. Uh, it is attempting to be a physics simulator. Um, it is the uh, unreal engine of role-playing games, is one way to put it. <laughs> what we've found out since GURPS came is that a lot of role-playing games need to be less uh, physics simulators and more uh, story generators, uh, story simulators. Um, I am a... I like a lot of D20-based systems, but I don't think that uh, smashing everything down into D20 class plus level, uh, you know, class plus race plus level, is a particularly great way to do uh, every kind of role-playing game under the sun. Because one of the things that made Traveler really unique in Classic Traveler was that you know you were rolling your character up through his various stints and what he was doing before he became an adventurer. And in addition to the fact that he could die before you got to character creation, the other thing that you got out of it was that was pretty much the only skills that you got. Once your character popped out of character generation, you weren't going to be getting any additional skills. You weren't going to be getting any additional boosts the reward of the play wasn't leveling up and getting new cool abilities or cool new toys. The reward of the play was the play itself. And that's something that D20 systems really don't handle that well. Right, because it, it was kind of Star Trek in that, okay, um, the doctor is the doctor, and he's not going to become the weapons technician as well. You know, it's just like you're in this role now, because that's you know who you were through your military career or, or however you got to where you're going. But the... Um, when you talk about like the the whole story generation thing, that has been a problem with me and sci-fi games for a long, long time. Is they give you like this elaborate like here here's the rule system, here's all this cool equipment, you know, like here's our guns and our and our scanners and how our shields work and and all this stuff, right? We've built this world, but we don't tell you what to do in it, you know. So it, it's just like oh well. Um, yeah, you guys all meet at a bar. Yeah, <laughs> right. And but but like, what's our reference? So we got Star, we got Star Trek, Star Wars, um, all that wonderful, terrible uh, sci-fi in the eighties. Um, and just to put and, and and just to put a point of reference in Star Wars, uh, the, the 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 adventuring party begins when uh, two of the cohort NPCs. Are looking for uh, are looking for the mentor NPC who meets up with the other half of the party in, who meets up with the other half of the party in a bar. Well, I'm speechless. 
<laughs> no. Yeah. He, I mean, he's saying Luke, you know, the trope. Luke like and you guys ben all met Han in the Solo. Yeah, Luke and, you know, Luke and uh, Ben meet Han Solo and Chewie in the most Eisley Cantina. You all met in a bar. <laughs> now let's go on an adventure. Jesus uh, Christ, my mind just blew up. What? That's why, that's why Ken makes the big bucks, is because he's got the <laughs> insight. That is, like... Look, I always thought of Star Wars as a fantasy, in my opinion. Like, I really have, but this yeah. just puts the icing on the cake of, of that theory for me. Like, that's... Well, it's like wow. it's like King Arthur mixed with the Kurosawa movie, and you're good, right? So, it's a samurai flick, and and sort of a, an Arthurian legend, right? Because he pulled the lightsaber out of the stone, and he's the chosen one. Yeah. Or... What? What? Um... Okay. <laughs> the what? boy king yeah <laughs> oh, god, the boy king. oh god that's crazy yeah mm-hmm. my mind is kind of blown <laughs> but, but it's, the thing, it's, it's the thing you know talking about tropes of of fantasy and science fiction and, and stuff right because there's only so many stories that humanity tells and mm. it, you know it's like we're gonna we're gonna tell uh you know uh, Something it's basically like cops and robbers, cowboys and Indians, princesses and dragons, you know, something some somebody's got a problem, we're gonna go solve it. And right. you know, and, and in some high adventure thing. So the stuff how how do they set that up in Traveler and did they ever did they ever get to the point of saying, Okay, here here's the world, here's what's going on, here's your place in it, and these are things that you could go do. Because so oh, yes. so many games are just like yeah, here, here's all this equipment and source material, but we didn't flesh out a world, you know. And and there's so many planets, right? Like every planet, well, like Star Wars, <sighs> perfect example. Every planet is is one type of thing, right? It's an ocean planet, it's a desert planet, it's an ice planet. Um, and you know, you look at Earth, and and we have, you know, billions of people here. So much diversity, multiple cultures. We don't even have aliens here. Well, not that we admit, but you know, it, it, it's just like the you you drive far enough in one direction, you're going to meet people that are effectively aliens. So I can only imagine on an interstellar scale where we had you know a thousand planets and how how humanity alone would diversify, you know, even without weird aliens. Um, and how those people would get along, right? Like the countries in Europe can't even get along with each other. You know what, what happens when you extrapolate that out into different stars, right? But but then science fiction has always been about let's take a, a real world situation and abstract that into a science fiction setting because we can strip away all the uh, all the foundational stuff. That is background noise and, and influences. You know, you, you think about surrounding things when we talk about Europe, and they have history and whatnot. But if I just wanted to talk about, you know, like the the Roman Empire, the rise and fall of, well, let's put the Roman Empire in space, and then we don't have to deal with all that history stuff. And I can focus you on let's let's look at this aspect of the story, right? Um, and that's a thing that I I have not really gotten from the sci-fi RPG stuff. Was so, was the you know here's your setting where you're at. So one of the things that uh, 
as happened in role-playing game design and the communities that grow up around role-playing games, uh, is that in the last, um, I would say, five to seven years, uh, people, it, it started out with something called the old-school revolution, which is people who love original old-school D&D, not AD&D, but first edition box set D&D, uh, and people who are trying to recreate those tropes. So like the, the over-basic adventure. Right. Are you familiar with that? Or basic RPG or whatever it's called? There it's, are it's a about, freeware there, open source there are about, D&D. Yeah, there are about 30 different remixes and uh, rehashes of D&D out there. At least 30 mm-hmm. I can think of. And, I pro- and there are probably more. It's not really my role-playing game scene. But one of the things that they do <clears throat> is that you make the adventure off of things the characters say. So loading up a lot of setting at the beginning tends to actually not be a good way to run an RPG. And one of the things that changed from when Traveler came out in the 1970s and now is Star Wars. Traveler predates Star Wars. Traveler predates Star Wars by a couple of years. Traveler assumed that everybody who was playing it had heard of or read books by Andre Norton or several other people that are listed in the literary references. And and And, actually, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg when they were in college, ran a traveler campaign, and no, I'm kidding. What? No, uh, I'm pretty sure that isn't the case. Um, but there is an urban myth about that I mentioned before about Tim Benier and Joss Whedon. Anyway, but one of the things that's happened is that with the idea that a game must come with a package setting, or that a game is tailored to a specific setting. Uh, the cons- there, there's been a bit of a, of a counterculture movement to that in role-playing game designs, where one of the things that you try to do is you try to encourage the GMs to improvise based on what the characters are doing. You, know, you, you come up with, a, with an outline of, of, of what the NPCs are doing, and you listen to what the players are saying, and whatever the players are saying is what you gradually nudge the NPCs into doing, because that way the players are more engaged. Um, this is an interactive medium for role-playing games. And that being said, uh, the product that I'm doing is actually more of a miniatures game than a role-playing game. But does it, it will it actually tie in to if I'm doing a role-playing thing and then I want to put my characters on a ship, then we like break your game out and because uh, like with uh, Star Frontiers back in the day, they came out with a box set. It was called Nighthawks, and that was you know their their tabletop board game spaceship combat thing, but it was based in. The, and, the role play. and right now, the current product that I'm doing will not do that. The smallest ship that I deal with in uh, my product is a thousand t- is the 1,000 ton Fair to Lance uh, destroyer escort. The biggest ship that a player character is ever likely to have as their own set of resources is about 600 tons. A future product that I want to do is going to be along those lines, but I'm very much on the big ship's end of the traveler spectrum. Um, and I also have some design problems with the idea that all the player characters get into their spaceship and the player characters make the skill rolls for, you know, the weapons, the sensor operators, the, the, I'm giving her all she's got captain, uh, rolls for the, you know, for the engineer while the GM is playing a bunch of spaceships out there. Because when you think about it, what the end result of that is, well, kind of lackluster because you know that the GM if he is playing better than the char- than the player characters are, well, oh gee, he just put a big hole through the reactor core of the spaceship, and the campaign just ended. Yeah, they talk uh, about your party uh, wipe, right? Yeah, uh, oh gee, he just blew off the front half of the spaceship, and the campaign ends. 
Um, it kind of ruins the fun of taking out the miniatures and playing a miniatures game if you know that the other guy can't afford to let you lose. Right, or the stakes are too high at that point. It's not even the stakes are too high. It's that it's a case of what the player characters will want out of a space scene is very different from what you get out of a miniatures game. What the player characters want is, hi, we're going to do something clever and pull a high gravity maneuver. Mm-hmm. We're going to pull a high gravity Oberth effect thrust and uh, slip a- and, and slip away from this gazelle fiery escort using uh, using hand wavy double talk that sounds vaguely scientific. And that's it. that. That is much better as describe the outcome that you're going to do. You know, d- describe the outcome that you want. Roll some dice, and if you succeed, what you described is what happens. If you get a partial success, you get what happens. And you have some negative consequences, i.e. we swung through that high-gravity maneuver, and now we have to do some engine repairs real soon here because, well, something shook loose and we, and we need to put her down someplace. Or you could be uh, Starfleet if, battles where, this, where the rulebook collection is sufficient that that scenario is probably somewhere. Right? <laughs> and then you'll have a fight at the table about you know who's got what book, and oh no, it's on this page. Yeah, I've played some Starfleet battles. It's ugly. Uh, um, I've played a lot of Starfleet battles. At one point, I was probably in the top 20 players in the country at it uh, and did a fair bit of development work for it. Um, I was the marketing director that came out with – that you know, was in charge when Federation Commander got launched. Oh, so, cool. Yeah, I like no Federation di- Commander a lot, a lot, yeah. lot. Wow, so are this you, guy right here. I know, right? Yeah, so like so no dissing on SFB, man. So Klingons? <laughs> I like Klingons. Uh, I also like the Andromedans. So you're like the Westmen of board games. Yes. <laughs> Only when they deal with spaceships, basically. So what we need to do is get Jack Campbell on the phone right now, and we'll uh, get you that license, and that can happen. So <laughs> have you read the Lost Fleet stuff? I have indeed, and I've even actually talked to uh, uh, to Jack Campbell on Facebook. Uh and at, we were actually looking seriously about meeting up at the con I was at, that I was at last weekend, but uh, he had some family issues that came up. He's also had some health issues, the poor guy. He yeah, has. He's, he's got a detached retina right now. Yeah. Is, yeah. That sounds horrible. Well, it's it an is. end to his boxing it, career, that's for sure. It, it, it definitely is an end to his boxing career. <sighs> but anyway... Um, that would be amazing, though, if we could make some kind of Lost Fleet tie-in. Oh, my God. <laughs> I would buy everything related to that. Well, let, me, let, me go, let me go back to the RPG question. Um, okay. Because the, I want to space, the thing I get asked a lot, and you guys were far from the first, was how do I use Squadron Strike Traveler to, uh, ha- to help my player characters in their Traveler game? And the short answer is you don't. You use Squadron Strike Traveler to play fleet actions in the Traveler universe. Uh, what would you want? You know, what, you know, what features? You know, what, what kind of what kind of movie scenes? What features would you want to play? What would you want to see in doing an RPG style adventure with, uh, with spaceships? True, that's yeah. what this does. So, so Squadron Strike being sort of a an open API. And, uh, you know, take take any space license, grab it, stick it in here. So let's talk about the big two, Star Trek, Star Wars, right? So uh, because this is actually a, a vector-based mechanic, so at that point, X-Wings and TIE Fighters start uh, uh, obeying actual physics. 
Um, how how do you work that? How do you because I know you have a cinematic mode in there, but you're still kind of using a lot of the toolkit from the vector stuff. So what I did with Squadron Strike was I set it up so that it has different movement modes, and the movement modes are named after the number of Newton's laws being obeyed. Mode zero, your ship moves like an ox cart. You turn off your engines, and your ship quickly grinds to a halt. Oh, Starfleet battles. Yep. Uh, or anime movies, you know, or yeah. or anime basically, uh, where oh my gosh, the engine is broken, and we are we we are stuck until we get it fixed. Uh, Mode 1 movement, your ship has momentum, but it magically rotates in the direction the front of the ship is pointed in. And as you turn, you bleed speed off. Mm. Uh, that, is, that, that is physics the way that George Lucas meant it to be, or a Lucasian model of physics. Mode 2, you have <laughs> vectors that are, independent of the, uh, sh- that are independent of the facings of your ship. And if you build up a vector of 8 hexes per turn in one direction in order to cancel it out, you've got to swing your nose around 180 degrees and apply 8 units of thrust in the opposite direction to cancel it out. I just I just um, want to point out that I'm going to get a T-shirt that says Lucasian Physics on it. <laughs> well, Steve, well, I think you did. You just coin that term on our show. Or are we famous now? <laughs> you might be famous, but I've been using it in demos for quite some time. What's even more funny is that uh, uh, is that Isaac Newton was the Lucasian Chair of Physics, uh, or sorry, Lucasian Chair of Mathematics at uh, at the university that he uh, that he was faculty of. That's really a thing. That really is a thing. Oh, so there's actually Lucasian physics, not just like George physics. That's a. <laughs> well, yeah, but then he has to come back in twenty years and change it, right? And it's like, you know, it's like new math, right? Or element <laughs> one fifteen is disnium, and that's what they actually run on. Common that's why warp... they never need to fuel up because they're running on disnium. Common warp core. <laughs> Oh, no. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Mm. That's, That's such terrible. a dad joke of you, Brian. Dead. Stop it. Stop it. <laughs> Correction. Uh, Newton was a fellow at Trinity College and the second Lucasian professor of mathematics at the University of Cambridge. Wait, what? L- Lucasian. I've never heard of this. Yeah. Well, when I when I started talking about Lucasian, uh, phy- uh, about Lucasian physics for, you know, George Lucas-style movement... I was unaware that uh, Newton was the Lucasian professor of mathematics, but it it was too much of a coincidence not to uh, carry on. So, so some I, I can visualize like you're you're giving this talk, and some some really beardy guy that's got a Starfleet battles manual in his lap stands up and goes, uh, "Actually, yeah. it's about ethics in uh, war. In, no. It's about ethics in oh, war God. games." <laughs> No, it's just sorry. I've, I've been I'm to sorry. a lot of cons. I, I know. <laughs> oh, oh, the best was um. Side, well, side, oh, go ahead. One of the things about having worked with Starfleet Battles for twenty years is that most of the SFB guys will actually, you know, give me mad props because you know I wrote a fair number of the rules for Starfleet Battles, um, huh. and also because you know I was there for uh, the launch of Federation Commander, and that really reinvigorated the Starfleet Battles Starfleet Universe community. So we need to get Ken to come back for our Starfleet Command episode when, <laughs> when we play Orion Pirates. Uh, yeah. That's in, a, that's in uh, two weeks, I think. It's next mm-hmm. week, not this week. Yeah, uh, you saw that, right? The Taldron game? I have. Uh, I know of the Taldron game. Uh, I have never actually played it. Oh, they're excellent. You if, can change you know, your life. If, if, uh, 
They're excellent if you can, like, you know, it's Star Trek, so things are abstracted. Yeah, it's it's basically Starfleet battles in real time. Uh, with uh, well, I'm familiar with I, I'm familiar with them. Uh, yeah. I've edited. I, I've done editing on Captain's Log, so I've read the articles that came out because of them. Um, oh. But I've never actually played them. Uh, in part because when they came on out, my poor little uh, cheap computer wasn't uh, capable of running them. And since then, because I look at how much time I have available for all all the projects that I have, and I go. Oh yeah, I need a time sync computer game that will suck twenty hours out of my life like I need a hole in my head. <laughs> so well since since you bring up, you know, computer games and and we're talking about that and then we're also talking about Federation Commander and stuff. So Starfleet Battles, Federation Commander and that. So if you go to their website, they have a subscription service on there where you can actually play Starfleet Battles and Fed Commander online with other people. I think it's like three bucks a month or, or something. What? Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. Starfleet battles online. Uh, yeah. Have, unfortunately, it's not really good looking, but it's functional. It, it is functional and is done entirely with uh, the swing user interface in Java. And I was the very first paying customer for them, uh, and knew both new developers of uh, and know know the developers of all four versions of it, you know, all four iterations of it pretty well. I mean, the Starfleet battles community is 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 fairly tight knit and. We all knew each other. So you know, the very first version of Starfleet Battles Online was, for all intents and purposes, uh, a hack of the IRC poker program. Wait, what? The IRC poker program. You would actually go and you would log on to IRC, and IRC would handle a deck of cards, and you could play poker with a bunch of other people in IRC. Really? Yeah, and then they adapted it into let's play Starfleet instead. It's a bot, right, that sits in the channel. This Federation Commander thing looks pretty neat. So it's a role-playing game and a no. card and a card uh, game. No, that's uh, the Starfleet universe. The Starfleet universe bears the, the the Starfleet universe is made up of of several games. The same with the Traveler universe is made up of several games. Oh. Federation Commander is one of the games in the Starfleet universe. Oh, yeah, I Federation see. Commander is basically like a reboot of Starfleet Battles, but but oh. they said, okay, let's take let's take these million rules that are all exceptions to exceptions, and let's just streamline that and get it back to something that you can play with a book that's under a hundred pages. I like how they have one called Starmada. That's hilarious. But yeah, Starmada, Starmada is based off of is the Starfleet Universe adaptation of uh, of the Starmada game engine, uh, which is written by a friend of mine by the name of Dan Cast, uh, and it is an interesting take on the universe. Uh, it moves quickly, uh, and ships are basically teeny tiny little things, and it's good for running lots of ships at once. Which, if you played Starfleet Battles, you know is not the is not the way to run with Starfleet Battles. <laughs> yeah, definitely not. You know, I want to I want a computer version of Federation and Empire so that I can finally play that game with somebody. That's well, that's what I want. What's uh, Federa- no, what's Fed- if, what? if you want to play Federation and Empire, you want to go to Stratcon. Which is a convention put on by the Federation and Imp- by the Federation Empire fans specifically to play Federation and Empire. <laughs> oh wow! Wait, 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 wait! So this game looks pretty epic. This Federation Empire game, but people made a convention j- just for this game. Yes. Oh my God, that's amazing! It's powerful. That that's amazing. 
How much is this stuff? No, because the Star Trek people are hardcore, man. It's it's oh. like they just let Star Wars yeah. exist. Yeah, oh, it's shit. uh if you th- if you think about it too, like those Star Trek folks are the same ones that are like keeping Star Trek Online alive. Like yeah. I guarantee, I guarantee you that. Yeah, it's a good oh. thing Ken didn't get the Axonar license because. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm, Federation and Empire is expensive. Just the just uh, the base yes. game is just the base. Uh, the base edition uh, is seventy dollars, and that's without all these other twenty, these thirty and forty and fifty dollars supplements. Mm. Yeah, and, but that, uh, that's about the same fantasy flight pricing model too. All right, so. And I will also point out that uh, unlike, say, indie, uh, that, that unlike indie uh, computer games, uh, those of us in the board game hobby actually like to be able to eat, <laughs> you know, more than once a week. Uh, and so we actually price our products in ways that are sustainable business models for us. Oh. I am amazed at the amount of time and effort that obviously goes into making an indie game that suddenly that, that somebody sells for. Uh, ten bucks on Steam, and then six months later, it's down to five bucks on Steam, uh, simply because, well, that's what everybody else is pricing theirs at. Yeah, well, there, there's a there's a wickedness to the market, but there's also like how many units get moved, right? Because it, it's like you don't like drop thirty thousand units on the first day either, whenever you bring a game out, right? So I, I guess, and plus you have the cost of physical production in there too. Yes. As I, as my official biography says, uh, I bring 3D acceleration to tabletop gaming, and I actually have a user interf- I have a user interface made out of actual atoms. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was. So how, I was. Sorry, go ahead. Well, how, explain a little bit about the uh, the tabletop board game business model, right? Because you have to. You're self-publishing, right? So, but because you're self-publishing, you also have to self-fund everything, and so you have your initial production run, and you you have to like have capital and invest in you know like a printer and boxing it and shipping it and and all that mess, and then you hope you get paid, right? So there's a lot of faith that goes on there in the customer. Well, I have an advantage in that I have a I have an audience that I built up for 13 years on this. Um, but that being said, uh, the general rule of thumb is that if I'm buy, is that if I'm putting a product up on my website, uh, the MSRP that I'm asking for it is about six times to seven times my production cost. So if a boxed game cost me if a boxed game is selling me is selling for 70 bucks, it costs me 10 bucks a copy to put it in. Um, and yes, it takes some initial capital uh, capital to set it up, but now that there are, but now that there are Kickstarters out there, it's actually pretty easy for me to raise that capital. Uh, speaking of Kickstarters, I just got noticed that uh, this. What? Are you there? Ken? Oh, sorry. Uh, push to talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just got. Uh, I just found out that Squadron Strike Traveler is uh, listed as one of the projects that we love on Kickstarter now. Oh, oh awesome. nice! Yes, yes. It looks like you just passed seven thousand dollars, which is well above your goal, which is great. I know mm-hmm. the show's only been on for a half hour. I think what we'll I do know. another half hour. <laughs> <laughs> now I wanted to ask you something because um, I don't know much about the 
board games and, and role playing games and stuff. All I do, what, what my thing is, I I've got several role playing games that I love, and I love having the books. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them now look. A lot of them looks like you can only get on um, PDFs. Mm-hmm. So have, have PDFs like changed your business model at all? Like, is it easier to get the games to people? Like, are they more willing to not have a physical copy now? Are they more willing to have a PDF? PDFs have opened up uh, international sales for me considerably. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, because you know, quite honestly. Even if it were Donald Trump, uh, I would probably vote and campaign for any president that said that his first executive order would be to mandate the return of surface mail uh, to the U.S. Postal Service. Um, (laughs) I would seriously consider voting for Trump if he did that. Oh, Uh, Jesus. Because FedEx is putting it to you? Um, Okay, so up until 2010, you were able to send things by surface mail. Uh, and a boxed game could be sent with about 20 to $25 in shipping, and it would take four to six weeks to get there. Now, if I want to send a box to Europe, I have to, uh, I have to charge my customer about uh, 55 60 bucks in shipping costs. Oh, my gosh. Crap. So yeah. do you get, like, bulk discount, you know, at some point? Nope. You... Ooh. And then do you yeah. get tariffs on top of that, or that? And the customer, include... ends, up pay- and the customer ends up paying tariffs on top of that. So my customers who are overseas are really dedicated to these games. Yeah, no doubt. So do you, do you um, have a lot of Germany fan base? Because that seems to be like where the big tabletop stuff goes down. I've got a fair number of customers in Germany and France, uh, a, larger, a larger chunk in the UK, a large chunk in uh, Australia, uh, and a growing group in Ukraine of all places. Oh, cool. We've we've seen a lot of the space game development stuff migrate over because we we had a a dead period in space games on PC at least um, oh, yeah. where you know it, it was it was like the early two thousands and it was uh, it was uh, you know like a just a boom market and then suddenly crickets like where did it go and and I think it was basically like all the venture capital fled the room because. Uh, you know, it's like, whoa, StarCraft, right? So, okay, now we're going to do nothing but RTS and first-person shooters, and nobody wants to buy a joystick anymore, and uh, and we're done with that. So it, it's kind of been, you know, us watching. Because we, we started doing this show, and we were we were just like, yeah, we're going to kind of reminisce about the, the old dead thing. And then suddenly it came surging back to life. You're welcome. And, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't think it was us. Um, but anyway, so... Uh, the scope of things changed because suddenly it's like everybody's doing one, and we've got you know a full a full guest list, and and it's crazy town. Um, so we were not expecting that at all. No. Uh, but it, it's yeah. So in the lull there, the only people that were making these games was uh, like Eastern European, um, mm-hmm. and that's because the production costs were so low. You know because they they just weren't getting paid a lot. Um, so they could afford to do it, and you know, of course, now it's sh- it's shifting back. But those people that were over there that are still doing that um, now they have access to you know the boom economy of it, so they're making higher and higher quality products too. Because it used to be for a while there, it was like, oh yeah, weird Eastern European game where they don't understand you know user interface design and things like that, and. So some of that stuff was really we have rough. user interface design approved by pro, by party proletariat. You will like it. <laughs> Happiness is mandatory. 
<laughs> Soviet Russia interface uses you. I was going to say, in Soviet Russia, game plays you. <laughs> why, do we feel, why are we making game in space? Because we cannot afford pixels for terrain. <laughs> True story. Oh, Jesus Christ. You know, honestly, yes, probably so, because assets, right? Like you gotta you gotta model the ground and those little buildings and stuff, or we put it in space. Hey, there's a planet. All right, we're done. Mm. Yes. You know, I really like I really like space games, but it lacks atmosphere. Oh. Wow. All right, Dad. There was a there was <laughs> there was that one space game that had planet stuff from Russia. Uh, the Tomorrow War. That game was crazy. Yeah. And not, yeah. And not and not that great. Right. That's a, that's that's exactly <laughs> symptomatic of, of the disease I was talking about. So, but yet yeah. has so much promise, you know, if it was just playable. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. um, so I, I'd started asking about, and you, and you were talking about, like, the, the number of Newtonian rules that are obeyed, and that's the, you know, the movement system that you have. So you can go from, from full-on, let's do vector math, right? And I, and I like how, how you have simplified that, um, and it's, it, it's a thing, like, I, I keep... Yeah, I, so you got what thirty degree increments, right? So you just basically pre bake the math on a table, and and it's like, well, we only have to calculate thirty degree increments. So now it's and actually vectors, doable. It's only sixty degree increments. Oh, is it? Oh, okay, I thought it was thirties because you used. Uh, you can still like, face. You can still face in thirty degree thirty degree increments, but what happens is the vectors get split between two sixty degree facings, and uh, the sixty degree facings being the vector math is really simple and straightforward. Yeah. So speaking of math, um, I noticed that you have some books on your website that are actually math and how to do it, like your orbital mechanics and, and such for gameplay. Yes, that... as a matter of fact, I do. Uh, Wait, really? The... Yeah, uh, two ebooks. Uh, they're available as a bundle that gives you both of them. Uh, one of them was the one that I was up for a Hugo Award last year. Uh, the other one is uh, the sequel to it that I just put out uh, earlier this month. So would you say um, that this is applicable to, like, say, computer guy that's out there listening and, and is like, I want to make a space game, but I don't understand how to calculate orbital stuff or vectors or, or any of that? No, is this, is that uh, this is th this is not the orbital mechanics textbook that you want. This is, however, a good guideline for if you're a fiction writer or running an RPG for figuring out how long it will take to get from point A to point B, uh, or what the hazards are of actually traveling in space. Oh, cool. Uh, th these are popular science treatments, uh, not the I'm going to teach you all the math you need to work at NASA. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's disappointing because uh, I was getting my resume together. I was one book away from it. I thought, yeah, you know, they had like what eighteen thousand applicants. Oh right, and they're probably yeah. only going to accept like three. Yeah, they said something about you had to go to college, so that kind of ruled me out. But <laughs> well, I meant finish college. I everybody went, but nobody. Went. But anyway, I didn't so notice these. Back to uh, so. Uh, so one of the other things that's out there is that you'll notice that there that there are three the Newton's laws. There are three of them, and in Squadron Strike we go zero, one, and two. If you actually want mode three movement, you play attack vector, and in some oh. ways, because the difference in attack vector we actually track fuel, and as you burn fuel, your ship gets lighter. As your ship gets lighter, its maximum thrust increases, 
and we actually have that apply in game. Wow, so that's ba- that's like basic rocket equation stuff, then, but applied to a board game. So that that's pretty cool. It is cool. indeed. It is so indeed. do I need a science degree to play this game? No, you'll get I a know. science degree playing the game. That's the key. Oh, See, he oh slips it's, you. it's a it's, it's a course in. Gotcha. Nice. Okay. It's sort of it's it's, it's sort of a stealth education. It's like Kerbal Space Program. You're having fun mm-hmm. dicking around, and you don't realize that you're actually learning, and then suddenly. <laughs> You know, you're sitting there going, well, gee, I just marked off that last circle on the fuel track. Now they're squares. What's that? Oh, yes. that. Hey, that means the rocket is moving. That means the rocket has a higher thrust rating. That's pretty much what it is. I did uh, terrifying amounts of math to give you a user interface that is circles and squares. <laughs> apparently, yeah, you got, and Jim, you and Hunter apparently saw this game in action, Attack, the attack vector one. You apparently saw an action at that convention you went to. You were talking about. Yeah, we saw them. Like uh, there was a lot of setting up. Uh, they were setting, setting up. up. Yeah. Oh. They they had kind of so started one see turn. An and... <laughs> yeah. How but how it, long does like a game like this take? And how many people do you need? Do you, is it just two? Can it be just two players? Do you need two? Or attack more vector than two? is attack vector is at its best as one to two players per one one to two ships per player, uh, and the oh. game mechanics are set up to be uh, simultaneous, so it handles multiple players decently well. Um, <clears throat> attack vector: the first couple of turns are going to go slow because you're just learning all the rules. Uh, once you're actually familiar with the game, turns take about fifteen to twenty minutes, and that's for oh. a full eight segment turn. Uh, and a complete game can be done in about 10 to 15 turns. So what are the ranges that you're fighting at here? And and, and the speeds, you're not clearly at relativistic speeds, right? So, oh, we're not even close to relativistic speeds. In attack vector, one hex is, ten, is 20 kilometers, and uh, one turn is 128 seconds of uh, real-time movement. And uh, uh, so, and uh, the speeds, a speed of one is roughly jetliner speed. A speed of two is roughly Mach 1 in equivalent, you know, Mach 1 at sea level. And most closing passes are done with combined vectors that average out to about, uh, oh, 10 to 20 hexes per turn. Wow. That's pretty great. I was what, told, what does I, that translate sorry. to in, like, kilometers a second closure? Uh, kilometers per, in kilometers per second of closure, uh, 156 meters, doing some math in my head, uh, that's about, that will peak out at about, uh, four kilometers, uh, at about four to six kilometers per second. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was, I was helping somebody that's working on a, a Starfighter game that, uh, they're doing, you know, and he had quoted like something like, well, you know, 10 kilometers a second. And I thought, okay, if you take the mass of an F-15, and you strap the engines on it that produce the thrust of the space shuttle because you know both of those are documented figures. And it's like if you're going 10 kilometers a second, you have a, about 40 minutes to turn around and come back to where you were. So maybe not do that. You know, <laughs> it's a little too fast. <laughs> but the the, um, the other stuff in there, the like weapon engagement range. So do you have do you have like how, how do you deal with like okay, I'm shooting lasers, right? Do lasers lose accuracy? Do they lose penetration over distance? Because it's not really that great a distance, right? Or is it a focal problem? Push the talk key. About that. What happens with lasers in attack vector is that you have a weapon table that looks a lot like a Starfleet Battles phaser table. You cross-reference the range, you roll a die, and that tells you how good your shot was. Uh, 
and pretty much lasers never miss. But you can have uh, you know focal effects and such be that uh, you're not actually doing any significant damage past the armor of the target either. Okay, and and you're actually modeling armor in in facets, right? So it depends on what aspect I hit you at. Is you know, did I tear the armor off or not? Actually, it's more like hitting it with an ice pick. Uh, we're assuming that the armor is a uh, is a very high tech composite metal matrix composite, and we're real. And for lasers, we're dealing more with energy of ablation rather than uh, uh, rather than kinetic shock or anything like that. Okay, but if I uh, hit kin- you with missiles, do I actually ablate your armor? Uh, if you hit with nukes, you ablate the armor. Okay. Uh, if you hit with missiles, uh, the missiles are assumed to be long rod penetrators. Uh, and they will just basically plow through the ship and do horrifying things. The fun thing about uh, kinetic weapons when you do them is that uh, Attack Vector actually has a model for kinetic weapons that takes your vectors, the vectors of your target ship, the vectors of your launch mechanism, combines all of them, and turns them into a firing solution, including telling you if you have a... It'll tell you if you, don't, if you do or do not have a shot pretty early on. Uh, and if you do have a shot, you fill out a card, you hand it to your opponent, and now it's his problem. Uh, he knows when they're going to arrive. He knows how much thrust he has to put lateral to their uh, course to avoid them. And uh, it results in a very interesting set of tactical interplays because you might have a set of uh, kinetic weapons that are only, say, doing 12 or 13 points of damage, which his front armor will take just fine. Uh, but if he turns you know, but, but if he turns to apply thrust laterally to them, well, suddenly those become actual threats because his side armor might only have you know, a value of three. Mm. But the bullets aren't going to track, right? So if I know that they're going to arrive at a certain hex, because it, you know I'm headed in one direction, so oh, no, the, I know the, that the, the, the bullets are actually tracking. Uh, they have some ability to count to, to cancel lateral thrust because if you don't, uh, they just never hit. Right, and, that, and that's what I was wondering: is is like, okay, you fire a shot, it takes time to get to me. I have plenty of time to get out of the way. Just don't be in that hex, and I'd be fine. So yeah, you have to have some way for them to to adjust. It's, it, it, it's actually you're, it's actually less about don't be in that hex and more build up a vector perpendicular to the axis that these are that these are closing on. Uh, if you think of it in terms of don't be in that hex, you are setting yourself up for uh, a very ugly experience uh, when somebody actually figures out that's what you're doing and smashes in, and smashes kinetics into you. Yeah. So, um, does it take into account like rate of closure? Like if if we're static at a certain distance, then yes, I have does. a velocity. But if we're headed toward each other, you know, at, at four kilometers, then that gets added into the kinetic impact of the weapon or what? It is indeed. And in fact, the, uh, the, the, the metric for how fast, you know, the, the metric for how fast the, uh, uh, the kinetic weapon is impacting at is called rate of closure. Hmm. Okay. And that's, that's handled as what, like a multiplier on top of, or what? Nope. Uh, basically, what happens is you cross-reference the rate of closure with the mass of the shell um, when you fill out the card, and that tells you how much damage the shell will do. Uh, then you fill it out on the card, you hand it to your opponent, and he knows how fast it's closing in on him, and he knows uh, when it will hit and how much ouch it has. <laughs> so it sounds like you have a lot of detail going on here, yet a sufficient amount of hand wavium that it's manageable. <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I like that. You know, it's it's like I've had Attack Vector forever, 
and just never been able to play it with anybody because, well, Hunter lives like three hours away and Brian's a whole coast away and, you know, I have no friends. Um, but that's the thing, why I keep lobbying, like, please, please put it, make an online version so people can can enjoy this thing, you know, because it's, it, it's tough, you know, to because it, it, it's like to find a game that's yeah. as common as like Starfleet battles, but then you take something that's niche like this and and try to find somebody local that's into it, and that's a much tougher proposition. So aside from like convention gatherings and stuff, it's it's tough. You know what? Well, you know what could happen with this though, and not necessarily like like full on developed online version, but what could happen is you take something like what the great people over at Roll Twenty have done, right? I don't know if you've ever seen that, but I've. I've used it, and I know quite a few of my friends who use it who live in, in different parts of the country. And uh, you could actually develop uh, this as like um, like just a, a thing that you can use in Roll20. And essentially all that is is importing image files and JPEGs of the boards and of the tokens, a.k.a. the ship models and where they would be. And then so you can have like all those... simulator in that aspect. Right, but... Yeah. But table, the thing about Tabletop Simulator is, is it's also um, like a, a 3D-generated uh, uh, thing, as where with Roll20 is it's it's simply to mimic uh, pen and paper type stuff or um, using, instead of actually using 3D models, you're using 2D tokens that get placed on the map instead. Yeah, so it doesn't and it's complicate not, it. And, and it's that instead of using 3D models, you're using 2D tokens is the reason why I don't try... Or rather, is the reason why all of the the two previous attempts to get Roll Twenty to you, you know, to work with Attack Vector and Squadron Strike have failed? Really? Because, why is that? Oh, yeah. Because well, okay. So you remember you say you've seen the game with the little tilt blocks and the box miniatures in, uh, out in play, right? Yeah. Okay, so those convey along with the tiles underneath them. Those convey altitude and orientation, and that is really hard to show with a fixed perspective, top-down camera view of the t- of the map. Unless, unless though, because you can add uh, specific tickers to tokens too to indicate. You say the, this ticker indicates its altitude. This in, this ticker indicates its uh, um, like distance to whatever. And yeah, I'm just around it. you could work around it, but the end result is something that you're going to spend more, more frustrating. Time, <laughs> the end result is going to be more frustrating than actually you know playing it in person. Yeah. So uh, what, what we need yeah. here is we well, need the guys over at Nordic in, Games. Mm-hmm. To bring the Nexus, the Jupiter incident engine, and then we've got it. <laughs> um, so, what I actually have planned is about a year ago, I did a Kickstarter for the Avid Assistant, which is a tablet-based app that does everything that the Avid, the Attitude Vector Information Display, does for uh, running a game in Squadron Strike and uh, Attack Vector. Uh, development on that has been slow because the person who was doing the coding suddenly got a job that paid him a living salary. Uh, <laughs> uh, hey, so, yeah. So the fact that I was paying him enough to keep the lights on and keep the and keep the wife and kid in in rice and beans, he still wants me to. He still wants to do this. He's still working hard on it. But it's now the I'm doing this in my evenings rather than I'm doing this for six hours a day every day. Um, but that is phase one. Phase two is a tool that would use 
Phase two is a, is a plan to use a tool like near-field communication or logging into a server somewhere to uh, have the program roll damage and do damage allocation to, SS, you know, to, to ships stored on other people's tablets. And phase three is basically using a Unity engine for doing a 3D representation of a map. But what I intend to do is build a series, is instead of trying to do this as a monolithic development, uh, my intention is to do this in a way where we build it up slowly, one step at a time, and each thing that I build adds functionality to playing the game in person uh, with tablets and in a game store, so that uh, at the end, when I actually go and do the virtual stuff, I don't, actually, I don't slit my own throat and get rid of the uh, in-person play community. Well, yeah, because that, that's kind of the danger zone there, right, is, is like, I don't want to make a product that obsoletes my actual product. It's not even obsolete's my actual product. It's that, you know, I was part of the first wave of people who were using Starfleet Battles online, and at the same time that it was going on, I was one of the people uh, who was doing a lot of playtesting for Starfleet Battles. And I had a battle lab that had, you know, 20-ish-odd people who would show up. Uh, not everybody, not all 20 would show up on every single game night, but over the course of a month, we'd see everybody. And some people liked playing scenarios, some people liked playtesting scenarios, some people liked doing tournament stuff. When Starfleet Battles Online came out, all the people who just did tournament stuff and you know suffered through the playtesting to have a playgroup, they stayed home and played tournament games. Yeah. And suddenly my battle lo- and suddenly my minimum viable group uh, took a hit. And you know people got older, they had kids, they got wives, they got mortgages, they moved away, and it became you know it, it became harder and harder to get everything running. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I really want to push is for people to actually go. And play these games in stores, because that is an important part of marketing for me. Um, It's great if you buy the product. I love it if you buy the product. It is even more important that you assemble your box miniatures, that you you play through the tutorial, that you understand the game, and that you go on out to game stores with a buddy, and you play there, and you talk to people as they come by and say, hey, what's that? That's neat. Oh, wow, you're actually playing that in 3D? Okay, i got to watch this and see what's going on. That's an important part of my marketing plan. Mm. Yeah, because really the only other space game that's in the market right now that that's actually got any traction is uh, well, there's two, but it's both the Fantasy Flights, you know, the Star Wars properties that they've got, um, but it's uh, you know an, an online version of that's not going to happen either, right? Because that's basically their you know their money is selling the miniatures for that thing, which your, yours is the base game, right? So I know you guys have miniatures, but that doesn't seem to be a focal. No, the miniatures are definitely optional. Uh, I am in the process of developing a better three-dimensional miniatures-based system, and we will see how that actually turns out, assuming that the engineers ever actually get back to me. Yeah, that uh, the miniatures thing. What I've seen, you know, pictures online of is, is like a, a, a pretty wild, like cam-looking. You know, it's almost like gear stuff to hold the angle. Um, and, and it's uh, like a, a strange crane game. That's, it's cool. That's I mean, right. It's like the only way to solve that problem, right? But other than have like a ball, I guess you know if you had a if you had a spherical metal ball, and then the ship had a magnet on on a stick coming out the bottom, and then you could just slide it around the ball, that might work. But other than that, yeah, if you're gonna have a flat, stable thing, then you know having some sort of an armature is about the only way to do it. Yep. Um, we're, we've got some interesting diagrams put up. And I've seen people working... use this for Starfleet, too. It looks pretty wild. Yep. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, so, so, was... 
to, to kind of give you guys an idea of uh, when he when he's talking about the Avid, um, if you if you think about it, it's it's not quite like this, but it, but if you think about like a, a soccer ball, right? How it's got the facets on it, and if you cut a soccer ball in half, so you have a dome, and you set that over top of your ship, and then you say, okay, I'm going to turn the ship to point through that facet of the ball. And that means that my course is going to be such. So, you know, and and you basically you plot that on paper, where where you say, okay, my nose is here, and I'm going to drag the nose over to there, and then I look at the change in orientation and how much thrust, and you look it up on the table, and then you find out where you actually ended up through through adding your current course, and then the course that you're making the adjustment, and you end up with the you know the middle of that. Yep. Uh, that is one way to describe the AVID. Uh, it's actually really hard to describe the AVID with just verbals with you can't, when you can't actually see it. I did because... just put a, image, a still image of um, an example, GIF, up on the stream for people to see. Yeah, and, and knowing about your involvement now with Starfleet, that explains a lot about the, the ship reference stuff. In, in this too, because that's like the only comparison that I could make is is kind of how the Starfleet ships had had that that complicated layout of squares on the thing. Because that's <laughs> that's a deal, right? You can blow off components. You know, you, you, it's not like oh, my ship has X number of hit points. You can actually knock systems off. Yes, um, that is one of the things that is a differentiator. Um, there are, uh, this is one of the places where there's a continuum of interesting design choices. Right. Sorry about the pause there. Didn't want to cough in your listeners' ears. Appreciate uh, it. One of, the cho- one of the design choices is, do you allow different facings of the ship to have different defenses? Uh, uh, Starmada does not. Uh, all of the ship's facings basically have the same defenses in Starmada. Starfleet Battles, you have six facings that correspond to the six faces of the hex grid. Uh, squadron strike, you have six facings that correspond to nose, left, right, top, bottom, um, and aft. Uh, some games like Full Thrust and the new version of Starmada uh, say that once you get past a certain number of boxes marked on the ship, you basically make saving throws for uh, each system that's on the uh, you know, for each system that actually does damage or does something useful in the game. Others like Starmada. Uh, sorry, others like uh, sorry, Squadron Strike, uh, as you mark off boxes uh, in the course of damage allocation, you lose capabilities as you go along. This is also the Starfleet Battles model. Yeah, is, so, is that kind of also the way that Fed Commander does it, where it, you trace the, the path through Commander the ship, does. and it's like, if this thing's missing, then the shot's going to continue on to the next thing that it would hit. And Not quite that way for Fed Commander, but you know, Fed Commander and Starfleet Battles have a fixed static... Uh, damage allocation, uh, damage allocation table, or damage mm-hmm. allocation chart. Uh, you roll one, you mark off things one, two, three, four, five, six, and if you don't have something of that particular box, you look, you check the alt, you, you check the alternative, the alternative option. If you don't have that, you move on to the next thing down. Um, and in Squadron Strike, the damage allocation system is very different from Federation Commander. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Squadron Strike, a ship, uh, a, a ship sheet is set up in such, that the, in such a way that there are 10 hit locations. Uh, you mark off a damage box. You, you, may, you, mar- you use enough damage to mark off one box, then move to the next group of boxes, mark off one box, move to the next group of boxes, mark off one box, and so on and so forth. Uh, the goal on the Squadron Strike damage allocation system was to make it so that it was interactive with the players. 
so that you would roll all four of the dice you need to make an attack, and in about the time you've gathered your dice up, he's already marked off the damage, and you're ready to go for the next shot. Um, it actually makes the game go back and forth a little bit more interactively, and it uh, speeds the game up. So the bulk of your time is is probably just in the movement aspect, right? In a typical game of Squadron Strike, uh, for people who are fluid with the game, movement is actually... Uh, first of all, Squadron Strike, one turn takes between 6 and 10 minutes. Uh, it's about double the speed... Uh, of a game of attack vector because you have fewer variables to deal with. Uh, the, the the situations where it's a 10-minute turn or where there's lots of damage allocation flying, the situations where it's uh, six minutes a turn are situations where you're just moving straight forward and you don't need to worry. You know, your, your movement options are fairly easy to see and fairly straightforward, and you don't have to worry about dodging torpedoes or something like that. Mm. So how does your... Uh, do you ship actually in the in the base game with the starship construction stuff there. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like for whatever genre, you know, whatever property you're pulling in, here's the conversion. So what I do with, uh, so what I do with squadron strike is that when you register your game, you get the download link for, uh, the ship design spreadsheet and the tool chain that I use for producing the SSDs that you saw in the samples that I sent you. Uh, Everything in Squadron Strike Traveler is using some, is using a subset of some of the stuff that's in Basic Squadron Strike. So once you have Traveler ships to work, you know, once you've actually seen the Traveler ships, uh, it's pretty easy to reconstruct them. Um, and when somebody download when somebody registers their copy of Squadron Strike Traveler, they will get the uh, you know, the ship design spreadsheets that we use to make the you know, to make the ships, so they can make their own variants pretty easily. Mm-hmm. I'm a firm believer in enabling uh, user modifications in Squadron Strike in letting players actually make the ships that they want to fly. One of the things that I don't do in Attack Vector is expose the ship design system, because quite honestly, if I had to provide end-user support for things that involve calculus, I would go and become a garbage man. <laughs> you could be a professor, though. You could go to like Attack Vector University and teach online classes. No, I would take up. I would get up at four in the morning and lift garbage cans into the into the back of the truck. Then he'd be like <laughs> Goodwill Hunting, which I still need to see. Yeah, you know what would be a fascinating property to deal with in this is uh, David Braben's Elite because it's smaller <laughs> ships, but the it's still. I mean, I, I assume you've played Elite at some point, if not the new one, then the old the old one or Frontier or whatever, because Frontier had full-on vector, you know, Newtonian physics going on. There, there was no hand-wavium about the, the flight model. <laughs> and the problem that that caused in a computer game is that people tend to point the nose directly at the target and stomp on the gas. Well, then you get closure rate beyond what you can turn with, and you end up with a jousting match where the, they just do flybys of each other and, you know, get a laser shot, and then they're gone, right? And then you turn around and do it again. Um, and it, I've... I've I thought that that's just how the game was, and then I watched a YouTube video of somebody actually playing it right, and it was just like, oh, that's quite elegant when you do it right. You know, <laughs> maybe if I, you know, I'd played enough of your board game that I'd understood. Um, but I, I think uh, that would be very interesting though, because they're smaller ships, and they, you know, they don't deal out as much damage, but they can't take a super beaten either. Um, but just that that universe because it's already a bunch of, of uh, predefined ships and weapons and stuff that you can convert in. <laughs> I've got to ask, is that Joan playing GTA in the background? She is. Yes. 
I can hear the cops chasing. Have her put some headphones on, guys. (laughs) No, it's fine. It's fine. It's just it's funny because I'm like, you live out in the middle of nowhere. Why the hell are there sirens everywhere? And then I'm like, oh, Jones playing GTA. (laughs) Yeah, I got my headphones on. I could. I didn't realize that carried. That's pretty cool. That's pretty. Sorry, that's pretty funny. Yeah, we got four stars here, man. We got to hurry it up. So, Ken, what would your advice be to someone maybe like me who's played a ton of computer space games, but pretty much no space board games at all? Like, would this be a game to start with, or would you recommend something else? Well, gee, hand me an easy question there, why don't you? Uh, (laughs) Should I play your game, or should I play something else? (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, you should play my game. Okay, um, there we go. I, I didn't mean to like pimp a pimp a competitor or anything. I'm just it's an, I'm just trying to ask an honest question. No, I I do understand where you're coming from. So, Squadron Strike Second Edition came out in December, uh, and Squadron Strike Traveler is based off of Squadron Strike Second Edition. Mm. Um, pretty much, what's in, in Squadron Strike Second Edition? There are four books in the box. One of them is the core rulebook, which is nothing at all setting-derived or related. Uh, It is entirely about how to play the game. Uh, There are three other booklets. One of them is a tutorial booklet that teaches the game in stages over seven scenarios. Mm -hmm. One of them is a scenario booklet that uh, continues the scenarios from the tutorial and runs out in in a complete campaign. Uh, hmm. The uh, third scenario, the the third booklet is is an SSD book. It has all of the ships that are uh, available to play. Oh, okay. And when I do Squadron Strike Traveler, uh, it's going to have the same. It'll have the same core rulebook as the box set for attack for for, sorry, for Squadron Strike, uh, but it'll have a different tutorial book, a different scenario book, and a different SSD book that'll have uh, much beefier SSD counts. Okay, so if I wanted to like start the easy level with you guys, for example, I would get the Squadron Strike Second Edition complete PDF bundle. Just read all that, and just read all that. Or if you, or if you're really, really cheap, what you do is you buy the Squadron Strike Starter Kit, which is just the tutorial booklet and just the SSDs that you need to play through through the tutorial booklet, and print and play, um, and you print, cut out, and assemble uh, box miniature sheets and origami tilt blocks, so that you can actually just print the things that you need to play. So with the with Attack Vector, you actually put out like a free version that was just the training mission right like you know you you need this this pdf and some chocolate and you're good to go pretty much uh that is the first chapter of the attack vector rulebook um and i can always tell when somebody has read the uh the the attack vector tutorial versus somebody who has played it uh somebody who has played the attack vector tutorial they, they they go oh my god it's beautiful it's amazing it just works you have to see this all the math, it, 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 it's like watching, a, it, it's like a Swiss watch. It's beautiful. You have to see it. As people are backing away, you know, because, oh my God, this guy's from a cult or something. So, so what we uh, need is actually for somebody who's a video. Just read, for somebody who's just read the rules, the response tends to be, tried reading the, tried reading the quote unquote tutorial, got halfway through the second, got halfway through the second part, heard sound of sizzling bacon got burns on my shoulder because my brains had been leaking out my ear. <laughs> so the advice is don't read it, just do it and you'll be fine. Yes. Play the tutorial, don't just read it. Which which is the point of the chocolate, right? You throw some Hershey's Kisses out there and then you fly the ship and it's like, okay, if you can hit the chocolate, you can eat the chocolate. And Exactly. 
Um, there, uh, there was a fellow in Britain who did a video on uh, Vimeo going through a good chunk of the Attack Vector tutorial. I don't know if he ever actually completed that, but he did the first yeah. two turns. Well, I think with your Kickstarter, um, do you have any video up there of the game actually being played where where you, you kind of tutorialize it a little bit? Because I think that's a thing that really pushes people over the edge is, is like, hey, this is how this works. And it's really it's a lot simpler than what it would sound, you know, when you, mm-hmm. if, you know. Um, I have a little bit of that with the Avid Assistant tutorial, and I'm planning on doing some more of it when I get back from the convention that I'm going to this coming week. Uh, word uh, pro tip: Don't launch a Kickstarter on the same. It, don't launch a Kickstarter on the same week that you're doing two conventions back to back. Oh, yeah. Because Kickstarter is a full time thing, really. Uh, yeah, that's the, our advice on on that one to everybody is like touch it every day, put an update every day, something every day, something. So yeah, de- well, you know, I'm definitely going gonna to the- get this starter kit. Sorry, I'm getting the starter kit. I just. I gotta get it after the show because no PayPal. Well, if you're if you're going to the convention this weekend, get somebody to video. Yeah, which one? The convention I'm going to is Fire and Ice up in Manitowoc. That 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 doesn't exist. That's not real, Manitowoc. That's not a real place. I don't no, believe that sounds that, like that, an Indian that, burial ground. I don't believe that's the name haunted? of a place. I don't believe that, that's the name of a place. No, it's actually it's, haunted. It, 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 it's a real place. It's also the place <laughs> where uh, making a murder. It, it's the place that making a murder is about. What? So is that also? Is that in? Where is that? Manit and also pet cemetery. <laughs> Manitowoc. Oh, it's in uh, Wisconsin. Let's see, I, uh, like I thought Michigan. it was Canada. It sounds See, like it would be, but no, it's Wisconsin, right on the right on the Manitowoc River. It's not. It's not. It's a very. It's a little place. It's a little bitty place. Mm. Wait a minute. Oh, it's kind of in. It's almost in that weird peninsula that that Wisconsin has. You know what I mean? But not quite. No, because you know? the peninsula is surrounded by water. So yeah, but it, but it's all. But you get all the off-season Gen Con. People, no peninsula you're in is Wisconsin. Not- a peninsula is three sides surrounded by water, and Wisconsin does have a thing. It's got a little like, like, like finger peninsula. Oh, hey, listen, on its, like, on its east. On let's, its not east. Talk, let's not talk about its thing, okay? That's not nice. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just, just glad you said finger because that's not what I was expecting. So anyway, uh, whenever you go I'm to trying the to curse last. I'm trying to curse last. Anyway, so when you go to this convention, you should have uh, your your beautiful young assistant, whoever that is. Um, but have them film your presentation at the convention and slap that up in the Kickstarter and you'd be good. Cause it's, you're probably better explaining it in front of a room full of people than, you know, like one-to-one staring ah. at the camera. I see the fire and ice convention guys. Admission is not very expensive. It's, it's, it's $25 for three days, all three days. Well, that's cool. Um, that's it's nice. the, pl- it's that, the plane that, ticket that would kill me. That is not no, that is not bad. I mean, ten dollars for Friday, fifteen for Saturday, and ten for Sunday, and uh, five dollars for children. And if you want to bring anyone under five, quote unquote, a non-player or a non-player observer, they're free. How much do you that's, charge for autographs? That's <laughs> this isn't like Comic Con where so there's not like a line to see him like Carrie Fisher. This isn't like no. Comic Con where you have Boomer from the original Battlestar Galactica and Aaron Gray from Buck Rogers sitting in a 
sitting behind a table hoping someone will pay them. That's so sad. That's like oh, the yeah. saddest part of any convention. Is, is I feel so bad for some of those guys. Yeah. Anyway, anyway yeah, so, so the, sorry. the videos, the video thing, because I want to see it played. And, and I think a lot of people do because, you know, it's like I've, I've got limited attack vector. Like I've played it myself to just kind of get my head around it. And, and it, like you said, it doesn't seem that bad, you know, when, once you get in. But it, just reading through the rules, it, it's kind of like, oh, wow. But then again, you know, you break out like Car Wars and you start reading the rules and it looks a little more complicated than it is, too. So, yeah. Yeah, the video doesn't on the Kickstarter doesn't really have any gameplay. It's kind of a pre-rendered thing, and then it's I'm I'm not watching it with audio. I'm guessing that's you, Ken, in the video. Yes, that is me in the video that, doing the talking head stuff. That's an amazing goatee. I just have to say that is very, very impressive. I'm not even kidding. That is that is a fantastic goatee. Oh, see so now I got to go there and look at that. It's and powerful. Make sure that his it's. It's it's uh, it's powerful. It reminds me of Ming the Merciless. Oh, Mary right, Universe Spock. <laughs> or Mary Universe Spock. It's it's kind of got that point a little bit, you know? It does. See, it I don't does. know anything about board games. That's why I have to come in with random shit like this, so I talk at all on this podcast besides the introduction. <laughs> or else I'd be like, where's Brian? No one knows where Brian is. He just walked off to play with his cats. Um. Hey, the cats need bedding too. They do. They they've been they've been bugging me the entire show, walking under my legs and stuff. Just like my hey, God, that is powerful. That's somewhere between right? Ming and Colonel Sanders. I'm telling you, I see Ming. I, I get the current the coloring is more Colonel Sanders, but the shape is pure Ming. That's what I see. Yeah, a, Wait, I must a, have missed. I must have missed this. Where was this link? It's, I'll, on, the I'll kick, link. it's on the Kickstarter video. Oh, okay, gotcha. It's on the I'm, Kickstarter I was on the video. page. I was like, where is this on? The- no, it's the video, and that is, no, that's a that's that is, a that's a see that's that's serious, a that's a, that's a that's a mirror universe Spock right there. That that's, is, that's yeah, a, definitely a member of the Beard Club for men. Fantastically sculpted. I'm not even joking around. That is fantastically sculpted. Yeah, yeah so Brian, you shaved right? Because Hunter's growing his back. I've of course will never be without I mine. Seen, I don't know if you've seen a recent photo I, of me, I, but I, uh, I, it's I, getting I, pretty intense. Yeah, you look I've like Grizzly Adams sh- last I saw. Jim, I've definitely <laughs> shaved at least once since we met two okay. years ago. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, I once anyway. sent, I, I sent out a me, but even went in the uh, Space Game Junkies uh, Facebook group that said, this is Khan. Khan's attack patterns show two-dimensional thinking. Don't be like Khan. Play a third actor. Nice. Nice. That, that was his big failing. I think I do think it's kind of fine that that's like maybe the only time Star Trek has ever even mentioned the Z. Yeah, because everything else in Star I, Trek is always in like this fictional like space only goes vertical so much. Like I love then, like in like in D Space Nine where they're having these massive battles and they're like, we'll never get through. Go up, go above them. Why are yeah, you doing that? You know. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so so here's the thing, right? Um, I get it's to, for drama, and I get it's for simplicity, and I get it's television, but ah! Yeah, Sorry. but the but the thing is, video games, right? Video games tend to emulate Hollywood, uh-huh. right? So like that, you have, I mean, look at Homeworld, right? Homeworld actually has, I'll call it altitude, because <laughs> the ships, when you know, you tell them to move up or down on the plane, but whenever they get there, then they level out, and all the ships have the same, you know, up and down, 
right? Whereas whenever you look at something like Nexus, the Jupiter incident, there's no up, no down. And there, in fact, there's no, you know, go to this coordinate. It's, it's, it's more like EVE Online, where it's like go nearer or further from this thing. Right, because every everything in space is a point of reference rather let's, than uh, coordinates. Let's let's bring up Rebel Galaxy at that. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, Rebel Galaxy is a game played on a tabletop, but because <laughs> there's not even any altitude there. But but I like it for that simplicity, right? Because they just abstracted the shit out of it, and it's it's okay, you know, because right. it's a cartoon anyway, right? It wasn't um, a complaint. I was just making an observation. No, but because it's I'm, a great game. Yeah, it, well, but I, I, agree. I can make an. I can make an argument that space combat will either be one-dimensional or three-dimensional. I cannot make an argument that space combat will be two-dimensional. You can make an argument that space combat is one-dimensional simply by having the weapon ranges be so long that compared to the maneuver capabilities of the ship, that maneuver doesn't matter, at which point the only thing you care about is distance. And I can make an argument that it's three-dimensional, and I pretty much do with attack vector and squadron strike. To make space combat two-dimensional, you have to do really strange things with physics and geometry. Well, the way that I've seen it done, and uh, this would translate to, to two dimensions. I mean, EVE Online is three dimensions, but vertical does not matter. So what matters there is distance and angular velocity. Uh, specifically, if I have a smaller ship and I can turn tighter than you, you have a big ship. Your turrets cannot turn as fast as I can orbit around you. Therefore, you have a harder time hitting me because you're like a clock, right? You're you're only right one hour, uh, you know. <laughs> like it, whenever I pass in front of the hour hand, you get to take a shot at me because you can never actually catch up to me. Um, so that's kind of the tactic in that game is is like what range do you want to be at, and what what velocity do you do you orbit the target at in order to screw his gun solution up. And that's really the only defense you have in that thing. Um, but that also, that, and, and that's very much a game design construct, mm-hmm. because why should my guns be limited to such a range where I can't actually shoot you while uh, you, know, you shoot you at a longer range? If they're in friggin' turrets and you're a small little ship, I should be able to target you and go kaplink, kaplink, kapow, and thin the herd. Oh yeah, if you get me before I get within range to actually cause you trouble, yes. And they and they do. They have sniper ships for that, but. You know, it's it's still you're going to be you're kind of preoccupied shooting the other giant battle cruiser and not so much the little frigates. So the little frigates swarm around you like gnats and are a pain in the ass. So you have to have point defense turrets to take care of that. Um, I mean, I, I like their mechanic. It's it's interesting. Um, I haven't seen a lot of other games do that though, because most games seem fixated with uh, you're playing it like it's on a, a tabletop map. You know, you put a pin in the table. You say go here, and that's not really I don't think how space would work, right? Because you go here relative to what, right? So it's it's basically um, relative to the ship I'm pointing at. You know, go closer or further from him. Um, but except yeah. that, except that, what you're describing is once again something of a game de- you know, a, a game designer construct, and it's really trying to recreate the feel of uh, you know, of World War II ships fighting off you know, fighting off incoming swarms of fighters. Uh, and that's a great feel. Don't get me wrong; it's a great feel. It may not be the f- and it's and there's nothing wrong with modeling your space combat off of uh, World War II if that's the feel you're going to. I mean, hey, work for George Lucas. So, uh, so what about this? What about Harpoon in space? Uh, mm. Harpoon in space is less of is actually 
another model that gets brought up a lot. And the problem with Harpoon in space is that Harpoon is very much built off of modern naval warfare, obviously. Uh, and modern naval warfare, all of the interesting decisions happen before the guns fire. Once you actually have accurate information on where something is and what it is, uh, maneuver doesn't matter. So it is not very cinematic. It's basically a bunch of uh, processing intel reports. It's a bunch of processing sensor reports. It is trying to play hide-and-seek with bazookas. Um, and it's actually, in terms of video games, it's more like a stealth game. Mm-hmm. If and, I were trying to we... do Harpoon in space, I would actually be modeling off of Arkham. What's Arkham? Uh, Arkham, uh, Arkham Asylum, the Batman, the, the uh, Batman oh. stealth games. Oh, okay. That's gotcha. the kind of thing. That that's the kind of thing that I would try to do. But the problem is, is that a stealth game that is basically Batman versus Batman Prime. Uh, uh, if you're trying to do Batman versus Batman Prime in a stealth game, the end result is that everybody spends all their time looking for one another and nobody shoots. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a debate that we had for a long time on here about how cool would it be to have a submarine kind of space game? Because, you know, like, like, uh, uh, I don't know, name, name classic DOS boot mm-hmm. computer game, right? Silent service or whatever. The problem that we found out though is, and you read atomic rockets, right? The website. I'm, I'm sure I contribute been... a fair bit. I okay. contribute a fair bit to it. All right. What, what have you not done? Give me five. Minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I can neither right. confirm. Did you did you work conf- on the secret of Vulcan Fury for for Interplay? Did you work? Oh on my that? god! <laughs> I can There's neither a funny confirm story nor de- there. I can neither confirm nor deny that I've worked on the secret of Vulcan Fury. I god can also ni- I can also neither confirm nor deny that I have had that, that, that I have taken Kate Upton out on a date. Son yeah, of a but- bitch! Wait, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> 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 She's a nice girl. Who's Kate Upton? The girl that sells Rift. that video game Bro? for like two million dollars a day. Go go Google uh, Kate Upton. Go go get uh, go, Sports go, Illustrated. Go, go, You'll be fine. Oh hey, go I open saw up that. a browser. Yeah. Go open She's up a browser tab. Photos. Yeah, go open up a browser Ooh. tab. Google Kate Upton. You're welcome. She's very pretty. <laughs> yes, yes, she is, Brian. Voluptuous, even. Yeah. Well, but, say that. Um. But we found, but as you're probably jumping to, as you lead up to yeah, the, the submarines and there's space, no spa- there's no stealth the, in space article. Thermodynamics, thermodynamics ruins your day, uh, which is actually the core precept of that uh, ebook that I mentioned earlier on in the podcast, the hot equations. Uh, thermodynamics and military science fiction. Yeah, so it's basically the moment that I touch the engines, everybody in the universe knows where I am. Well, within, you know, it, the the only hope that I have is distance because speed of light only travels so fast. So they're not going to really see where I am until maybe I have a chance to be somewhere else. But they're going to see any course correction I make, so they're going to be able to predict where I went. Yep. So the only thing uh, I can do is hide behind a big rock and hope nobody sees me. Except that even hiding behind a big rock when you're orbiting it, it means that you're going to be in front of the rock for some of the time. Yeah. So... Uh, yes, stealth in oh. space is uh, stealth in space is one of those things that. Well, one of the reasons why I wrote that uh, ebook was because I got really tired, really, really, really tired of rehashing the same argument again and again and again and again and again and again. 
about what if I do this? 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 Where people throw out a zillion harebrained schemes and none of them will actually work because they can't imagine a universe where uh, you actually see somebody coming long before you get to weapon range. Uh, so they want, they, they very desperately want some sort of stealth in space because they desperately want that to be their model for combat. Yeah, so since you can see them long before you can shoot at them, um, why isn't your space combat also kind of a harpoon scenario, right? It, so it's it's not a detection game, but it's just a, a thing of like, okay, who, sh- who shoots first wins, right? Um, the primary reason for that is that in Harpoon, the, uh, the the primary reason for why it isn't he who first, he who, for, who shoots first wins in Attack Vector and Squadron Strike, one much better armor, much much better armor. Two, uh, in Harpoon, when you hit something, when you hit a ship with a missile, you're putting a hole in the ship. When you put a hole in the ship, water comes in. When water comes into your ship, the ship starts to sink. In space, if you put a hole in the ship. That comp- that uh, component is breached. You know that you know that compartment is breached. You've probably got a you you probably got a great big huge uh, uh, burning white hot hole through the ship. That if it's a laser, is probably about oh a foot uh, about a foot in diameter. But the ship is still perfectly capable of fighting. Mm. So are these ships actually um, what sort of engine technology is going on? Because you and I we had this conversation eight years ago about the thermodynamics and, and the actual limiting factor is heat dissipation because you can only do so much without cooking the crew. And that's why the whole ass of your ship is a giant radiator is because you're trying desperately to, to get rid of as much heat as you can. And there's no medium in space to do that. So, you know, it's not like you can run air past the radiator faster or something. Um, so in attack vector, uh, we use some magic hand wavium technology to get some very high density <laughs> plasmas. Uh, it, we, we, uh, we, we use some magic hand wavium technology to get some very high density plasmas out there, uh, because otherwise those radiator bells on the back of the ship would be about eight times the diameter that they are. Are you guys writing yeah. this down out there? You, you listeners, are y'all writing this down? This is a yeah, lot of it, information. Because really, I, I had thought, well, why don't you have almost like a solar sail because it's about it's about surface area right mm-hmm. so you would want just a giant very thin metal thing that you can open up as wide as possible and, and that can and, sustain and that can sustain the temperatures that you need because thermodynamics right. means that the efficiency of your radiator goes up at the fourth power of the temperature uh and you know as near as we can tell the radiators on the back side of uh, the ship's an attack vector would be glowing at about thirty five hundred to four thousand Kelvin, uh, which is really blissed, which is really blinkingly hot. Um, and if we didn't have uh, really high density plasmas in there, using some sort of uh, hand wavium in there to make the plasmas work, uh, instead of it being the picture that you see for the cover of Attack Vector, which you probably want to show to the people who are streaming the podcast. Um, where you have the, the, the main hull of the ship being like a ball and a uh, gantry work and a great big huge spiky radiator thing at the other end. That spiky radiator thing would be eight times the diameter, and instead of it looking something like out of 2001 A Space Odyssey, it would look sort of like the head of a mace on the top of a uh, crinoline skirt from uh, you know the, the, the 1880s. Mm. 
Yeah. So, what about um, what about like the nuclear light bulb? Would that, um, that would work, and uh, it wouldn't get you the thrust that we use in attack vector. Well, that's the problem, uh, is because you yeah. you have to be fast enough to maneuver to keep the game interesting, but thrust right. to weight, you have to have such an astronomical amount of thrust that yeah, yes. so you have to do something there. Um, right. In attack vector, there are two different modes of thrust. There's cruise mode, which is actually a pretty plausible thrust mode uh, for thrust. Uh, it, you know, it, it pushes out at about four to, four to eight milligies and uh, is much more fuel efficient than the combat mode thrust. Combat mode thrust, we actually are thrusting in you know increments of eighth of a G. Bone shattering eighth of a G increments will crush you to powder. Um, well, the ship kind of remind me of the Discovery from 2001. Right, so yes. you have a you have a crew ball in the front, and it's armored up, and it's got guns hanging off of it. But other than that, you know, it's a it's a sphere. Um, and then you have a stem and an engine because you want to get the engine as far away from the squishy human people that like to like be mm-hmm. irradiated and die. So you you keep the engines away from that. But then you have the whole center of the ship is a big fuel bladder. And I'm just thinking, well, that's what I want to shoot. I want to blow your fuel tank off, and then you're done. So, one of the things that uh, changes that is that when your combat ranges are increments of 20 kilometers, precision targeting becomes a little bit harder. Hmm. It's not like Star Trek, where you can be like, oh, target their engines. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I mean, if the majority of the ship, like, think it's a pencil, right? And the humans are, mm-hmm. are in the eraser. The rest of the pencil is fuel tank, and then the lead is the engine. Mm-hmm. So, so, I'm probably going to hit your fuel tank. Yeah, yeah, and that is, and if you ever take a look at an attack vector ship sheet, uh, you'll find that there are a lot of entries for hit fuel tank on the damage allocation tables. The thing is, is that the, the the thing is, is that the people who are designing these ships expect the fuel tanks to get hit, uh, and so they are very carefully making sure that they are um, survivable. Right. So it's compartmentalized. Um, now, whenever yeah. I get a hit like that, then I'm I'm actually checking off fuel. Like you lost X number of boxes of fuel that you won't be able to spend and maneuver now. Correct. Um, But then that lightens your ship, too, so I might do you a favor. (laughs) Uh, You actually just mark off columns of of fuel instead of marking it off on a a row at a time as you burn it. Wow. There aren't aren't enough computer games that cover this kind of detail. I know, right? And and that's the thing. That's, That's why I wanted to get Ken on here, is because... There's so much going on in this game, and he's he's thought about this, and, and it, of course, you have to have some BS or it doesn't work, but he knows where the BS is, right? So it's it's not like the entire thing is that. It's just like, well, we, we were as close to real as we could get, but we still had to fake a few things, otherwise it wouldn't be an interesting game, right? So some at, at some point, you get a concession to gameplay. But other than that, it it's kind of uh, makes you think some profound thoughts about, well, what would we actually do in space combat other than just not do it, which I think is the best solution. I tend to agree that it would be the best solution. Um, well, how, how do you handle like where combat happens? Is it always going to be pretty much in the gravity well of a planet? You know, it's, it's like there's um, nothing to fight over in deep space. So why would I be there? pretty much? It is going pretty much. It's going to be where there's something to fight over. Uh, and in the setting of the 10 worlds that tends to either be around a planet and we have orbital mechanics rules that actually give pilot perspective, orbital mechanics. Uh, we also have a, um, 
Does that mean you have to thrust against gravity, and you can also use gravity to, to kind of carry you on yes. a trajectory? Uh, yes, actually. As you thrust prograde, you end up developing a secondary force that is pushing you away from the center of the planet. And when you thrust away from the center of the planet, you have a secondary force that is pushing you retrograde. When you thrust retrograde, you have a secondary force that is pushing you uh, in towards the center of the planet. And when you thrust in towards the center of the planet, you have a uh, thru- you have a secondary thrust that's pushing you prograde. So, so if I have the right velocity, vector, and distance, then I'm going to just drop into an orbit. Yep. Uh, in fact, it assumes that you're actually going to be in an orbit at the start, um, because basically, once you actually try doing, say, you know, two ships fight in retrograde orbit, you don't have a fight; you have mutual suicide. Yeah, and I just want to point out again: this all happens on a piece of paper, not a not a computer game. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, the, I you know, in attack vector tactical. Uh, in Attack Factor Tactical, we load algorithms from paper into wetware. Yeah, I've got the uh, tutorial uh, PDF up in the stream now, kind of glancing through it for uh, Strike Vector. Yeah, you have to be careful. Tactical. You might actually learn some physics here. Yeah, it's it's very, he's, very detailed. He's, he's, taking, the, he's taking the physics and he's wrapping it in peanut butter. And, mm. you know, it's like trying to get a dog to take a pill. You know, he... <laughs> I love, how there's a whole, I love how there's a whole side panel. One And one part says, don't panic. And the other part says, a note on complexity. And there's a bunch of stuff here. Great. <laughs> is someone recommended I read these? Because one of my favorite computer game manuals is for the rules of engagement games. I don't know if you've ever played those. But those I never are, have. Those are probably the most detailed capital ship space computer games you'll find. Uh, and I mean, and they, they were like, what, late 80s? Before no, complexity early, early went out of style. Early nineties, but close, but close. Yeah. It was like it was like ninety, and then it was like ninety-two. So it was like a year or two apart. Oh. But um, so someone told me since I love reading those manuals, I would enjoy reading this, and I actually am. I'm just oh, kind of skimming through it a little bit. This is free, guys, on the website. There's a is... there's an address at the very bottom when you get done reading it that you have to um uh write a letter to get your uh, diploma mailed to you once you finish the course. God, God damn it, Hunter, I actually believed you when I scrolled all the way down to the end. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm such a fucking gullible. A fucking gullible. And where's the address? I don't see it. <laughs> address? Oh, oh, Hunter, you got me again. So, so, Ken, how did you begin this descent into madness? Like, what was your first game that you did, and why did you make a game? My first game that I did was writing a supplement for Starfleet Battles that eventually became uh, Module C5, the Magellanic Cloud. In between when I wrote that and when it got published, I effectively became the executive developer for the Omega Sector stuff for Starfleet Battles. Um, actually, I should uh, amend that. The very first game that I wrote was an RPG that I wrote in the uh, in 1986 when I was 16 called Renegades, which was an attempt at making a science fiction uh, cyberpunk RPG. And oh, dear Lord, was it terrible. Oh, you Uh, too, huh? Oh, yes, me too. Uh, This is one of those games where I will say, uh, if you have a copy of it, uh, I will uh, pay you $20 for it, or I will pay you $40 for video of you burning it. Oh, my God. (laughs) But uh, I actually wrote it, published it, 
uh, as, as a 16 year old and sold it. And, uh, the money that I use, the money that I made from selling it, I bought a second phone line up in Alaska of all places to run a bulletin board service for people to play uh, online and, and interactively. Wow. So how, how big would you say your player base is for this game? For, for, for squadron, for your games, I'm sorry, for attack vector, squadron strike, that sort of thing. Um, my basic rule of thumb is that roughly one person in three registers their game. Um, mm. And, and uh, right now I've got a little bit over 1,000 people registered for attack vector and a little bit over 1,100 for squadron strike. And That's there is pretty- some overlap between the two of them. And is that a good player base for a board game? I, I really don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a, that's why I'm asking. I really don't know. I mean, for a self-published uh, one-man operation like yourself, is that a good player? Is that a solid player base? Uh, push the talk key. Sorry, that is, uh, sorry, that is, uh, that is a decent-sized player base, but the basic rule of thumb in board games and computer games is that Anybody who makes a uh, computer game, you know, is there anybody who makes a board game, can probably sell a thousand of anything. I know that I have actually sold more than three thousand copies of these games combined, mm. um, because basically I've got you know, and, and probably closer to three, and, and probably closer to, uh, you know, probably closer to six thousand uh, at that point. To be honest. My hope is that Squadron Strike Traveler will actually get me uh, more customers and a broader customer base, and will help me reach out to uh, other play- help me reach out to uh, other uh, customer bases and the like. So, can we have the dream here of finally on the tabletop Star Wars fights Star Trek, and we see who's better? Can Can you handle that in there? Um, that is actually one of the fairly standard convention scenarios that I run. Excellent. Oh, really? Who usually? What side? Which side usually wins? Babylon Five. <laughs> it depends on the skills of the players, because you know it wouldn't be fun if I set it up so that uh, Star Trek was always firing from uh, faster to light movement and Star Wars wasn't, because then it becomes well pop 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 pop. Uh, so <laughs> you basically make it so that it has a, so it's actually a fun scenario rather than uh, pushing it on like. Oh, yeah, and, and, and next time we get together, I need the explanation for how do you shoot a phaser when you're moving at warp five, because I've never quite understood that. Um, it's, it's, it's simple physics. Um, yeah, yeah. It's trans warp. Simple physics, trans warp. That's exactly. Do you you feel that JJ destroyed Star Trek with hand wavium, hand wavium. I love that. I'm stealing that for so many things now. Seriously. I'm just going to use that for everything. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) I, I think we've pretty much covered it. And, I think uh, so. I don't, I don't want to wear you out because you know you got your yeah. Going, going for on. we're going for almost two hours, so we don't want to over overstay our welcome. But it uh, looks like your Kickstarter has already been funded. What uh, what are, what are the stretch goals? What are the big stretch goals you want to do now that it's already been funded? Well, the first big stretch goal was adding a fourth counter sheet. The second stretch goal that I want to do is miniatures, and mm. uh, I just had is adding more miniatures, and I just had somebody uh, uh, delete their pledge. Uh, while we were on the call here, because what he deleted their pledge, they deleted their pledge while while they were on the call because they say that the, my latest update did not fill them with confidence. Uh, they wanted to know why I didn't have quotes for getting uh, miniatures uh, 
before I launched the Kickstarter, and the long story made short, is that I wasn't expecting to need those Kickstarter stretch goals until next week. And so everything's running a little bit faster than I was expecting. Well, um, yay? Yes. See, that's, yeah. that's the burden of success. That's what we call mm-hmm. that. I mean, so. congratulations, congratulations on being funded, but yeah, it sounds like there are some chinks in that particular armor. And yeah. I, I look so, at it like this. The uh, I look at it like this. I appreciate every single backer that I've got. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate all of the uh, people who support the projects, and I don't hold it against anybody or really want to hold anybody up for mockery for dropping out of a project because everybody has you know, reasons for their own confidence on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I've already he come had back to deal too, once you post whatever he wants to know. Yeah, um, and mm-hmm. it is one of those things where. Uh, you know, basically his answer was, you know, why didn't you get the quote before you launched the project? This gives me the impression that you're not very good at planning and organizing, which could spell disaster for this Kickstarter if something goes wrong or worse, if it goes very well. Wow. Uh, I will be writing a reply to that that says, hi, uh, I have shipped every single miniature uh, to my backers that I have promised in previous Kickstarters, and I don't intend to break for that now. Uh, but... I honestly was expecting a slower burn on this one than I got, and I foolishly set up a Kickstarter to uh, start at the same time that I was doing a, a two weekends in a row at conventions. Um, so yeah, you can actually ding me for uh, not for you know, for for failure on planning because well, <laughs> I wasn't figuring I was going to need these stretch goals until later this week anyway. Yeah. So how does uh, how does the production part of this work? Like as far as um, okay, you're going to get miniatures made. And you're going to get boxed games made, so you have to find a printer that's going to do it. And then uh, all these all these are like die cut counters, right? So um, so you have not only the printing, but also the cutting of the stuff and and all that. And I've I've talked to some people before that made small games, and, and it was just kind of like, yeah, I got sticker sheets, and I'm and I'm like cutting these things with an exacto knife in my kitchen. You know, and it was so. So, when it comes to the printed games, um, uh, all of the Ad Astra titles have some common components: uh, the plastic tilt blocks, the plastic stacking tiles, uh, the things along the the and the box miniature sheets. I have a vendor that I source for for the box miniature sheets. I have a vendor that I source for for the box wraps and the other outside printing stuff. Uh, but I print and bind all the rule books uh, in house. Uh, I have my own printing plant. Oh. Um, it was more capital up front, but it means that I actually get to go and run a fairly lean uh, production uh, you know, production cycle. Uh, I have a miniatures vendor company that prints that, uh, that that spins all my miniatures for me now. Uh, and I'm in talks with them to have them do the, instead of sending me bins of miniatures that I then sort into orders, uh, of just basically having them sending me uh, packaged pallets of miniatures so that I just have to pull something off the shelf and put it in the box. Because as a one-person operation, I just don't have the time anymore to actually hand-assemble miniatures orders. Oh, that's cool, right. though. So, so whenever I crack open my, my box of Attack Vector, the, all those sheets of origami ships, the, those actually like rolled out of a printer in your basement then? No, the box miniatures I have printed outside and die-cut outside. Oh, okay, gotcha. Nice. All right, so so it's the rule books and such. Yeah, it's the rule books and such. That sounds like a good place to wrap it up. Sorry, yeah. it's getting late. Uh, so your kick your uh, Kickstarter is still going for um, a couple more weeks, I think. 
uh, and you've already been funded. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have stretch goals now. So, folks, check out the Squadron Strike Traveler Kickstarter. The link will be in the video notes as well as the uh, notes on the for the podcast. Um, next week, doing something slightly different, our guests are overseas. They're in Greece. So because of that, it's going to be an early morning podcast, 6 a.m. Pacific time, which means no Jim and no Hunter. Sorry. Can't, sorry, gentlemen. I'll be uh, It's Wing Commander Flat Universe next week, and uh, the the brothers who are making it are in Greece. So, yeah, it's either that or can't do it really in the middle of the night for them. So, so yeah. So, uh, there's a chance I might be there, but we'll see. Oh, yeah. really? Oh, okay. So, yep. so I mean, that's, the... that's 9 a.m. your time. I thought you guys would be at work. But if you can be there, great. Um, is, it, is it Flat Wing Commander because they couldn't afford the altitude? Yeah, they, they couldn't so afford like that third. The, it's, they it's couldn't afford like that third European, dimension. Right. They, to, they totally couldn't afford that third dimension. Uh, where the hell was I? Okay. Um, so yeah, folks. Next week the podcast will be in the morning at six a.m. Pacific time. Just FYI. Um, and uh, this week uh, we're going to be playing quintet on Thursday with the developers. We're going to be also be going to be giving away keys for the game for Steam. So and you, you want... get a car, and you get a car. Yeah, you I was get a quintet. Like, like, keys to what? I, I thought we were going get... <laughs> And you get a quintet, and you get a quintet. And it's five of them, five, in fact. Five musicians will show up at your house. Is it a mariachi and... thing? It's, no, no, it's, cla- <laughs> it's classical. It's classical. Uh, but, uh, folks, I want to thank you all for listening and watching, Ken. This has been... Very enlightening. I'm sorry I didn't talk much, but I know nothing about this sort of stuff. So, but Jim and Hunter, do. Jim and Hunter, thank you for, thank you for, uh, yeah, taking up, picking up the slack, and uh, being I excellent just, interviewers. I just want to, I just want to end with this. Mm-hmm. Picture the scene. Okay. A wizard and a farm boy walk into a bar. Uh-huh. They need, they need a pilot to get them to where they're going. Uh-huh. I just uh, that that just. Yep. Okay, so so you have a wizard and a farm boy, <laughs> and Han Solo is kind of a rogue. A rogue, he's the and rogue. And what's Chewbacca? You Chewbacca is clearly a barbarian. As I was say, he's the barbarian. You also have two familiars. That's you also, right. You also have the two familiars. They're outside. You know, the the the, the bar doesn't want the familiars in there. No magic. Well, so, no, I would think R two D two is more hobbity because he's short. Get useful. You know what I could do? And, and C-3PO is clearly an elf. Because, you know. <laughs> C-3PO is the Legolas of Star Wars? Is exactly. That no, he isn't. Oh, God. No, no one's you as pretty as You probably didn't recognize him because of his arm. No one's as pretty as Orlando Bloom. Okay. Oh, does, that, does, no. that make, does, that, does that make Jar Jar a bard? Oh, no. And on that note, good uh. <laughs> nice to be here with you guys, and somebody needs to get that man a drink. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Two men walk into a bar, the third one ducks. Good night, gentlemen.